This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Welcome to the Neff Madness Podcrawl. The idea behind a pod crawl is for a variety of podcasts to coordinate on timing and topic to push a theme and get each other's listeners to explore all of the podcasts. One of the very first goals behind Neff Madness was to build a community. And in the early years of Twitter, Neff Madness was central to the formation of Neff Twitter and defining the ethos that makes our online community kind, intelligent, vibrant, and interesting. The Neff Madness Podcrawl hopes to inspire and grow the nephrology podcast community in the same way. For 2023, our second year, Podcrawl has assembled the Avengers of medical podcasts. We have the Curbsiders, Get the Skinny on Mineralocorticoid Receptor Antagonists. Core IM will be covering kidney transplant in their classic five-pearl format. The Cardio Nerds will be covering the effect of heart failure devices on kidney health. Freely Filtered will try to understand thrombotic microangiopathy. ISN Global Kidney Care goes deep on IgA nephropathy. The Cribsiders look at transitions, first the pediatrics to adult nephrology transition, and then from living to death with palliative nephrology. And Fellow on Call will be covering onco-nephrology. And finally, the Nephron segment looks at transgender health and CKD. Eight podcasts, one for each region in this year's Neph Madness. Go to nephmadness.com slash podcrawl to get links to all of the shows. Thanks. Hey, everyone. This is Amit Coyle. We are in for a real treat today as we get down and nerdy about durable LVAD considerations and renal dysfunction. This episode is developed in collaboration with the NSMC Nephrology Social Media Collective. Leading the discussion, I am thrilled to introduce a veteran of the show, Dr. Sonu Abraham. Sonu is currently a third-year cardiology fellow and cardiologist ambassador from Leahy Hospital and Medical Center in Massachusetts. She is soon to join Northwestern Medical Center in the Windy City for Advanced Heart Failure and Transplant Cardiology Fellowship in the summer. Sonu, you have become such a valuable member of the Cardiologist community. Thank you for everything you've done and welcome back to the show. Thank you, Elmuth. I am really excited for this episode. I'm looking forward to learning a lot. This will be a perfect primer for me before I start my Advanced Heart Failure Fellowship. And for me as well, this will be an exciting episode. Friends, I have the great privilege of introducing Dr. Brian Houston. Dr. Houston completed his medical training at Emory University School of Medicine and residency at Johns Hopkins Hospital, where he remained for Chief Residency, Cardiology Fellowship, and Advanced Heart Failure and Transplant Fellowship. While at Johns Hopkins, Dr. Houston famously founded a now favorite storytelling tradition called Legends of the O. At a time when the entire OSA residency and Hopkins Department of Medicine get together annually to remember our heroes and celebrate their moments of greatness and pursuit of clinical excellence. It's a highlight of every year. He is currently director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program at Medical University of South Carolina. And more personally, both Dan and I have had the privilege of learning from Dr. Houston when we were residents and really try to model after him as educators. 
Dr. Houston, welcome to the show. And listen, Dan sends his regards. He is stuck in the cath lab. Thank you so much, Amit. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. It really seems like just yesterday we were in the trenches together in Baltimore wrestling with fascinating cardiovascular physiology and learning from each other. And I'm really excited to talk about this complex and challenging topic. So many fond memories of that time. Thank you, Dr. Houston. I would like to take the honor to introduce Dr. Nisha Bansal. Dr. Bansal wears many hats at the University of Washington, Seattle. She's an associate professor and the Arthur Stack Family Endowed Professor in the Division of Nephrology. She's also an investigator at the Kidney Research Institute, the Director of Nephrology Clinical and Research Education, the Director of the Kidney Heart Service. Dr. Bansal completed her college at Brown University, obtained a medical degree at the University of Connecticut, and her master's degree in clinical research at UCSF. She also completed her internal medicine residency at Tufts Medical Center, followed by Nephrology Fellowship at UCSF. Welcome to CardioNerds, Dr. Bansal. Thank you so much. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. I'm excited for a very passionate conversation, I'm sure. I love that. Passionate indeed. Drs. Bansal and Houston, thank you for joining us again today. We are all so excited to learn all about left ventricular assist devices and the implications of renal dysfunction in these patients. So let's dive right in. Sonu, I hear you have a fictional case from the CCU at the Cardinals Medical Center, aka the Shulman Ward. Yes, indeed. So my patient is Christian Lopez, a 40-year-old obese male with a BMI of 45, type 1 diabetes, resulting in kidney failure and non-ischemic cardiomyopathy with an EF of 20% and a normal RV function. He was eventually initiated on hemodialysis, at which point he developed worsening heart failure, requiring inotropic support, and is admitted to our CCU, the Shulman Ward. He's being evaluated for LVAD implantation as a bridge to heart kidney transplantation. Dr. Houston, could you begin by giving us a rundown of how a durable LVAD works for our audience and the various aspects of a patient's history that you take into consideration while evaluating them for LVAD implantation? And what would be your thoughts while evaluating Christians specifically for an LVAD? Absolutely, Sonu. It sounds like a challenging case. So we have a young gentleman with what sounds like end-stage cardiomyopathy and also end-stage renal disease. So I'll start with what is an LVAD? And uh, it helps to define the acronym, I think, first. So it stands for Left Ventricular Assist Device. And this helps tell you what the device does and maybe even more importantly, what it doesn't do. So these devices support circulation by unloading the left ventricle providing increased cardiac output in the right clinical settings to help support organ perfusion and a quality of life and increased survival. Some important facts about the current iteration of LVADs is their continuous flow. So instead of providing pulsatile flow, they have a continuously spinning rotor. Now the current device, the HeartMate 3, does have speed modulation where it will increase and decrease speed at a certain frequency, but still generally provides continuous flow. The anatomy of the device, they have an inflow cannula, which is a metal tube, which is inserted in the left ventricle. This allows blood to flow to the rotor, which then pushes blood out of the outflow cannula, which generally connects to the ascending aorta. And from there, blood flow goes to the rest of the body. These pumps are also electrically powered. In the current iterations, this power is housed outside of the body. So you have a drive line that exits the patient's body and goes to either batteries or can hook up to wall power. 
when I'm evaluating a patient for an LVAD, I'm really trying to answer two big questions. And the first question is, are they sick enough? Is this a patient who has heart failure, which I expect has a high chance of taking their life within the short-term time horizon, generally we're thinking within the next year. Now, there are many different scoring systems that are probably beyond the scope of this talk, but we have lots of ways to evaluate, is this a patient who truly has end-stage heart failure? For our patient, Mr. Lopez, the fact that he's requiring inotropes is a particularly dire sign. It would make me believe that, yes, we should consider advanced heart failure therapies, which encompasses transplant or LVAD for this patient. So that's question one. Question two is a tougher one to answer. And this is, you can think of it as, is this a safe option for their treatment? Or maybe more specifically, do we expect the benefit to outweigh the risk for this patient? And there are a lot of different spheres we can evaluate for this. One is physiologic. For example, I mentioned this is a left ventricular assist device. It's not a right ventricular assist device. And so we need to make sure that the patient's right ventricle, or as sure as we can, that the patient's right ventricle will continue to support circulation after LVAD implantation. We're looking at whether they have other life-limiting organ failure, kidney failure, as such as the topic of this podcast, but also do they have lung disease, liver failure, vascular disease that will be dangerous for them during LVAD support or limit their life despite LVAD support. We look at anatomic concerns. Is their left ventricle large enough to support that inflow cannula and the subsequent flow? Do they have surgical risks, multi-time reoperative status or calcified vasculature, for example? And then a third sphere, which can be very challenging, is kind of the psychosocial sphere. Is this a patient that's going to have the cognitive or the dexterity wherewithal to handle LVAD connections? Do they have a support system to help with that? Can they make it to appointments and take their medications? And I always include a fourth sphere, which is, does the patient want this device? Uh, we need to make sure that we're involving patients in these decisions as well, preoperatively. And I want to make sure that they are going to want this device and move forward as a active member of their care. Specifically for this patient, I mentioned his kidney disease strikes me as a challenge thinking about him for LVAD candidacy. As I'm sure we'll get into, LVAD implantation carries many challenges, both perioperatively and postoperatively for renal function, and outcomes bear some consideration when we think of how do patients with chronic kidney disease and end-stage renal disease do going through LVAD operation and thereafter. Gosh, I feel like I'm back rounding in the Hopkins PCCU with Dr. Brian Houston as my fellow I feel like it's great to share with everyone what those days were like. But this was really helpful. We sort of covered the purposes for the LVAD, the anatomy of the LVAD. And then the two big questions, does the patient really have an indication, i.e. end-stage heart failure? And then several considerations around the risks and benefits specifically at play here, maybe concerns around this patient's kidney dysfunction. Dr. Bonsall, with your expertise in the intersection of kidney and heart disease, could you shed some light on the available data on the outcomes of LVADs among patients with end-stage renal disease, i.e. patients with CKD requiring dialysis? Sure. So, gosh, this is a tough case. You know, remember, patients with end-stage kidney disease are quite sick. They have a high burden of comorbidity. 
And unfortunately, we see a lot of heart failure in these patients. So this question that we're discussing today is very real world and arises quite frequently, unfortunately. You know, it's estimated that as many as 40% of dialysis patients have heart failure. And studies have looked longitudinally as well. And it's thought that three quarters of patients start dialysis with LVH. And so even if they don't have heart failure, when they initiate dialysis, a high proportion of patients develop heart failure during their tenure on dialysis. Uh, Once they do have heart failure, the combination of heart failure and end-stage kidney disease, overall, the prognosis is quite poor. Even in patients with end-stage kidney disease without heart failure, we see that survival rates are only about 40% at five years. And if we look at the causes of death, by far, cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death, and heart failure does account for a good proportion of those causes of death. When studies have looked at this combination of end-stage kidney disease and heart failure together, we've seen that the five-year survival of these patients is typically less than 20%. So really quite unfortunate for patients to have both these diseases. And so it comes to the question at hand today, you know, should we put LVADs in these patients who are already quite sick? I think Dr. Houston's framework was really nice in terms of thinking about what benefits could these devices offer in these patients and whether these patients want these devices. So what do we know in terms of how these patients do if they are to receive an LVAD? So our group actually did a study on this looking at national data. So For nephrology, we actually have a national registry called United States Renal Data Systems, which is a registry of all dialysis patients in the country. And through that registry, we're able to track outcomes quite nicely. And so we did an analysis where we looked at all hemodialysis patients who had received an LVAD. And what we found was that, unfortunately, the outcomes were quite poor compared with patients who were not on dialysis. Overall, 50% of patients who were on dialysis who received an LVAD died during the index hospitalization, and this compared to less than 10% in patients who were not on dialysis. And when we looked longitudinally, we found that the median survival of these patients was only three weeks. And if we looked further out, we saw that at six months, about 70% of patients who were treated with dialysis plus an LVAD had died. So overall, pretty poor prognosis, you know, and I think when we look at the data overall from registries such as Intermax and other studies looking at LVAD patients, we do know that kidney function itself is probably one of the strongest predictors of outcomes in these patients. So these findings, unfortunately, are not surprising, but it does help hopefully in terms of anchoring discussions and shared decision-making about the risk versus benefits of an LVAD in this population. Thank you, Dr. Wensel. That really sounds like the prognosis for these patients is pretty poor. Median survival of three weeks seems pretty dismal. And 50% of patients on dialysis dying, that seems like a really big number. Dr. Houston, are there any scenarios where you would still consider LVADs in these patients? In other words, is there a subset of ESRD patients who may benefit from LVAD implantation? Thanks, Sonu. And it's a really challenging question. You know, we want to be able to offer kind of cutting edge life-saving technology to patients with end-stage heart failure. But I think, and Dr. Vansel's study has been instrumental in demonstrating this, 
for patients with end-stage renal disease, this may not be a life-prolonging therapy and it may just be too much. I do think there are very select patients where we may consider LVAD implantation for folks with end-stage renal disease. One of the most striking numbers from Dr. Bonsell's paper for me was 155. So in a, in a 10-year sample of a large swath of patients, there were only 155 patients with end-stage renal disease who received an LVAD showing that, you know, we in the cardiology community, even then knew that this was, you know, a pretty select group of patients, but particularly for very young patients with otherwise, you know, good functional status and good end organ function otherwise. And if they may be a candidate for combined heart kidney transplant down the road, if for whatever reason you can't get them a transplant now, they have some sort of reversible contraindication or an unfavorable blood type or body size that's going to make their wait time prohibitively long, uh, you could consider LVAD as a bridge to transplant. I think you really need to be sure that there's another side to the bridge in heart kidney transplant and that it will come pretty soon. I think there's another subset as well where you may be convinced that the renal disease could reverse. Now, it was specifically asked about in-stage renal disease patients but some patients progress to requiring dialysis very soon before we consider LVAD. And if it's thought that, you know, maybe if we can get them adequate cardiac output, their renal disease could reverse and they could escape dialysis. That might be a patient you could consider. It's very challenging to predict this future for folks. But if you have the hemodynamics to support cardiorenal syndrome, so if before an LVAD and the time when your kidneys are struggling, you have a lot of renal venous congestion, so high right atrial pressure or low cardiac output. If renal imaging doesn't show, you know, cortical scarring or echogenic kidneys and the absence of proteinuria also seems to be a relatively better prognostic sign, maybe you would think, okay, these kidneys might recover. I think a third scenario, and this is going to be a little, a little nebulous and pie in the sky, but I'll, I'll say the future. And by that, I mean, advances in LVAD technology seem to occur you know, every month now. And we may have pumps where the risk profile for these patients improves over time. It seems with the current iteration of pumps, this is still very, very risky, but it might improve either implantation techniques or pump technology in and of itself. My friends, they were up in Maryland, Zach Cohn and Quaitan published a case series of 21 patients who had very low GFRs, many less than 15. There were 21 patients, again, very selected in retrospective analysis, but they had excellent one-year survivals, upwards of 80%. They had a very algorithmic approach to these patients with early and aggressive use of temporary MCS going before LVAD and aggressive use of renal replacement therapy postoperatively and had good outcomes. So there may be techniques or technological advances in the future that are described where we're able to open this up more to consideration. Thank you, Dr. Houston. This really sounds like a very nuanced decision-making process. Like you said, just a very small group of patients who may benefit if they are in end-stage renal disease. If you could elaborate, would there be a, a scenario where, you know, like our patient, these patients can be considered for heart kidney transplant? I think that is an ideal scenario. If you have a patient such as this who's fairly young, who has failure of both organ systems, heart and kidneys, if you can get them a heart kidney, the data seems to show us that it's a better outcome 
and what's been described for patients who receive an LVAD in this scenario. Uh, there's a case series over a large period of time out of Cedar sinai and Dr. Kabashigawa, where for heart kidney recipients, they described over 80% survival at five years, so clearly kind of outstripping outcomes for LVADs. The UNOS listing criteria did change a few years ago, and it can be a challenge to find organs or allocate organs for some of these patients. They have to meet appropriate UNOS listing criteria for both heart and kidney. They have to be sick enough to be far enough up the list. And that's typically statuses one and two in many organ procurement organizations, sometimes status three, depending on blood type. And then they have to be approved, of course, for listing by both the heart and the kidney transplant teams at the local listing center. Yeah, thanks for going through that. It sounds like for some patients who have advanced kidney disease and are being considered for a durable LVAD, that an alternative strategy of heart-kidney transplantation may be appropriate depending on the specific situation and potentially even an LVAD as a bridge to dual transplantation down the road. But this conversation is sort of reminding me of another patient we're also taking care of at the Shulman Wards who had a slightly different presentation. Ms. Linda Karpinski is a 50-year-old made-up female, active smoker, who has ischemic cardiomyopathy with an LV ejection fraction of 10%. She didn't have prior kidney disease before this presentation, but now presents with oliguric acute kidney injury with currently an estimated GFR of 32, potentially lower. Now in cardiogenic shock, oliguric requiring anotropic support. She eventually had an LVAD implantation as a bridge to heart kidney transplant. Dr. Bonsell, could you run us through how you would think through this patient and her candidacy from the kidney function standpoint for an LVAD, from the perspective of someone who is presenting with an AKI without antecedent chronic kidney disease, would you expect Ms. Karpinski's kidney function to improve after LVAD implantation and maybe avoiding the need for a kidney transplant? Yeah, no, this is a great case. And Ms. Karpinski is quite different from the previous patient, which we discussed. You know, she has no prior history of chronic kidney disease or end-stage kidney disease. And now is coming with acute kidney injury, presumably from her worsening heart failure. The questions about what does the LVAD do directly to the kidney function is a great one. And there's some nice data out of the Intermax registry led by Dr. Jeff Testani from Yale, which has followed patients longitudinally over time to see what happens with their kidney function after an LVAD. As expected, we do see a substantial improvement in kidney function particularly in the first month or two after LVAD implantation. Presumably, it's because you're restoring normal hemodynamics. You're relieving that renal venous congestion, those high right atrial pressures with the LVAD implantation, improving cardiac output. And so with this restoration of normal hemodynamics or towards normal hemodynamics with the LVAD, the kidneys are happier. Their perfusion is better. However, when we look longer term beyond this initial period, unfortunately, we do see that there is further deterioration of kidney function over time. So that improvement is usually not sustained. In this one study, they found that, that the patients had this very rapid improvement, but then this really sloped deterioration in the subsequent one year after LVAD of kidney function. The EGFR ended up being better than the pre-LVAD implant EGFR, but not by much. So why do we see this? You know, I think it's complicated. You have reversible underlying injury related to the heart failure and the congestion. 
However, there are some kidney insults that you can expect to see with the LVAD itself. We've talked about how LVADs are continuous flow devices. And that continuous flow, we know, directly impacts the vasculature system of the kidneys. We see periarteritis, hyperplasia of the renal arterial smooth muscle cells, and then neurohormonal activation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, all which cause kidney injury over time. And so I suspect that we're seeing some of this long-term kidney damage from activation of these processes in the kidneys. And I'd also like to say that, you know, sometimes I have trouble prognosticating patients in terms of what their true baseline kidney function is at the time of LVAD implant. I don't feel like creatinine is the best marker of kidney function in these patients. Typically in heart failure patients, we see that they have these repetitive acute kidney injuries, and there probably is some scarring and some underlying kidney damage that may not be captured adequately by creatinine over time. I like Dr. Houston's comment on proteinuria. That's a really great marker to assess at the time of LVAD implantation. But I think we have to sort of think more comprehensively about what's happening in the kidneys when these patients get their LVAD and then subsequently afterwards, knowing that creatinine may not be capturing all these changes. And so that's, you know, so if creatinine is not the best marker, what markers should we be using? And so in nephrology, we've had a few alternative kidney markers that are available in practice and some that are soon to be available in practice. One is cystatin C. And so cystatin C differs from creatinine is that in that it's not based on muscle mass. So remember, creatinine is generated by muscle. And so there's bias if you're at extremes of muscle mass. So if you're a very cachectic patient or an extremely muscular patient, that would affect your creatinine generation and your serum creatinine levels. And certainly we do see that body composition changes over time in patients who have heart failure, which may affect their ascertainment of kidney function. And so cystatin C is definitely an attractive marker in that it's not relying on muscle mass in terms of monitoring kidney function over time. It's a protein that's freely filtered and not secreted nor reabsorbed, so it meets all those criteria for a good filtration marker. There are some caveats with cystatin C. There is some non-renal production of cystatin C, including from adipose cells. And so you sort of have to think about cystatin C comprehensively with other markers of kidney function to really assess what the kidney function is. The other markers of kidney function that we are getting very excited about are tubular kidney injury markers. And these are markers that are actually expressed in the urine, so proximal to where the injury is happening. And they're thought to be earlier, more sensitive, and more dynamic markers of kidney functions, especially in the short term. So those types of markers are going to be available fairly soon, I imagine, in terms of clinical practice of being able to measure them directly from the urine. And so coming back to this patient, you know, what should we do? I think what distinguishes this patient, as I mentioned from the previous patient, is that one, they didn't, they've had AKI. Two, this is a bridge to a transplant, which I think is a very important distinction. And they're being considered for both heart and for kidney transplant. So that actually gives me a little bit more reassurance. So I think that knowing what I know about this patient, I would proceed with the LVAD, you know, watching their ki- her kidney function very closely with the ultimate goal of getting her to this dual organ transplant. 
Thank you, Dr. Bansal. It's so intriguing how the heart and the kidneys have such a close relationship. From what you said, it looks like once the alveolar is placed, there's an initial improvement in their kidney function. But over a longer time period, there's further deterioration in that one-year follow-up period. And also, there seems to be a pathological effect on the kidneys from the continuous flow of the LVADs, which is intriguing because I didn't actually realize that there could be a you know, molecular effect of the LVAD on the kidneys. The last thing that you mentioned was about the creatinine not being the best markers and you know, all this research that's in the field of new markers is truly exciting. And so the other thing that I think I've gotten from this discussion so far is that if patients have AKI, there may be a component of cardiorenal syndrome, and in, these patients may in fact have an improvement in their kidney function after LVAD implantation. And this is in contrast to those with end-stage renal disease on dialysis who have an overall poor prognosis, and it's overall contraindication to LVAD implantation, except in certain scenarios, particularly young patients who may be candidates for a heart kidney transplant event eventually. Yeah, that was a great summary, Sonu. And, you know, so far we talked about a couple of patients, one with dialysis-dependent advanced kidney disease, another with baseline normal kidney function, but presenting with an AKI in the setting of cardiogenic shock. What about somebody who has moderate kidney disease who is not dialysis-dependent? Mr. Pradeep Kumar is a 45-year-old male with obesity, long-standing diabetes, ischemic cardiomyopathy with HFRF, stage 3B CKD with an EGFR of 40 who has been followed in the cardiac heart failure clinic for quite some time. He's had multiple hospital admissions, especially with escalation recently, with worsening heart failure, and was evaluated for LVAD implantation. Dr. Houston, in Mr. Kumar's case, he is not on dialysis, but does have pre-existing renal dysfunction. Does having prior kidney disease increase the risk of AKI after LVAD implantation, both sort of in the acute post-operative setting and then maybe more long-term? Yeah, great question. And another kind of slightly nuanced, different patient presentation than our previous two. The short answer to your question is yes. Having chronic kidney disease prior to LVAD implantation does increase your risk of AKI. And I think, you know, we should dig into what does that risk look like uh, from an incidence perspective and from a severity perspective. If you look at the reasons you know, why many of our heart failure patients have chronic kidney disease, it's often those you know, multiple sequential insults that Dr. Bonsell mentioned earlier, renal venous congestion, low cardiac output. And while an LVAD will eventually address these problems, especially in the intraoperative and perioperative periods, we might not make these better. In fact, we might make these worse despite our best efforts. I mentioned earlier, you know, this is not a right ventricular assist device. And while we unload the pulmonary vasculature in the right ventricle often comes along with that process as its afterload drops, we sometimes find that we could run into right ventricular failure. And right atrial pressure may not drop. It may stay the same or may actually increase worsening renal venous congestion. Our patients may bleed, requiring large volumes of product and crystalloid, which contribute to congestion as well. Longer cardiopulmonary bypass times during complex anatomic or surgical LVAD implantations can be difficult. And our patients can have hemolysis either during cardiopulmonary bypass or in the setting of ongoing LVAD support. So all of these physiologic insults can increase the risk for acute kidney injury. If you look at different kind of patient series, 
the Mayo Clinic published a 10-year series where they reported that 15% of their patients went on to require renal replacement therapy, at least in the post-operative setting, if not long-term. If they selected for patients who had a GFR less than 45 and proteinuria going into their operation, that risk increased to 40%. So almost half of those patients required renal replacement therapy going forward. They kind of found four different risk factors. The presence of a low GFR, as I mentioned, proteinuria, increased right atrial pressure going into your operation. And they said, you know, at least greater than 10, greater than 15 is even worse. And then longer cardiopulmonary bypass times. All of these seem to predict a higher risk for acute kidney injury and requirement for renal replacement therapy after LVET. So what does this mean as far as outcomes go? As we think of trying to answer that second question that I mentioned in our LVED evaluation, is this going to be a beneficial operation? In a subsequent case series, Tarun Dahlia and Zubair Shah looked at patients who went into their LVED with CKD3 or worse, and they found a one-year mortality of greater than 30%. In fact, if you looked back at another review that Yanis Yalson did, they looked at patients who had AKI after LVED and found that their 30-day mortality was as high as 18% and a one-year mortality as high as 40% with increased risk of infection, multi-system organ failure, and longer length of stay. So clearly the presence of an AKI after LVAD complicates things, worsens the prognosis, and the presence of CKD before LVAD increases your risk of AKI after. Thank you, Dr. Houston. The things I take hold from this part of the discussion is that there are a few risk factors that we can actually look at to figure out whether these patients have a higher risk versus not, though it's not perfect. And like the points that you mentioned, like proteinuria and increased RA pressure, long cardiopulmonary bypass time, and other risks like bleeding and hemolysis and glomerulonephritis, all of this does predispose these patients to worse outcomes. So it's really nice to understand that and hopefully we'll be able to predict that in certain patients and choose the right patients for LVAD implantation. So Mr. Kumar eventually had an LVAD implantation with a HeartMate 3. His hospital course was complicated by right ventricular failure and worsening kidney function requiring renal replacement therapy. He was eventually transitioned to peritoneal dialysis. Dr. Bansal, could you run us through the options available to these patients in terms of long-term dialysis at this point, meaning once they appeared to be dialysis-dependent, unfortunately? Yeah, great question. And I love that we're talking about this because our options that we can offer patients have changed. We do have more options available And in fact, home dialysis therapies are rapidly increasing in this country. So I'm excited to talk about this. So probably the type of dialysis people are most familiar with are in-center hemodialysis. And what that means is that a patient goes to a dialysis center usually three times a week and gets treatment for four hours on average, sometimes more, sometimes less, and then returns home. There's many advantages of hemodialysis. It's a form of life support, right? These patients can live years, we've learned, using this model, live at home, be ambulatory and not hospitalized. However, in LVAD patients, in-center hemodialysis does pose a lot of challenges. For the patient themselves, this thrice-weekly hemodialysis can be very hemodynamically challenging. Normally, in a patient with functioning kidneys, you're getting continuous kidney function 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
And these patients were doing all of your kidney function that you need in 12 hours a week. And so for that reason, there's intensive clearance of small and middle-sized molecules. As we know, these patients can be hemodynamically a little bit tenuous. And so large ultrafiltration rates can be very difficult to tolerate because they do lead to lower mean arterial pressures as well as blood pressures. You know, that can be a challenge for these patients. The other thing to think about is uh, anticoagulation. So LVAD patients have to be anticoagulated. And end-stage kidney disease patients are uniquely prothrombotic as well as more likely to bleed. And so for that reason, anticoagulation is very challenging for them. Do recall that patients do receive heparin often with their dialysis treatments as well. Unfortunately, we do see sometimes patients have bleeding complications if they're anticoagulated for their LVAD plus receiving hemodialysis. And this can be very tricky and obviously often leads to poor outcomes if they do have bleeding complications. And then the third issue that I think about with these patients are infection. So the LVAD themselves poses these patients at very high risk of infection. And in dialysis patients, many of them dialyze using a central venous catheter, which is another foreign object that's placed to their bloodstream and accessed three times a week. And so the combination of the LVAD plus this indwelling dialysis catheter that's accessed frequently puts them at extremely high risk of infection, which can be really, really serious in these patients requiring multiple hospitalizations. And so the patient themselves has some challenges with in-center hemodialysis. There's some pragmatic challenges with the hemodialysis centers themselves. A typical hemodialysis shift will have 10, 20 patients and nurses caring for multiple patients at once, and they don't have the specific technical expertise to care for these patients. And so anticipation for a patient being accepted into a dialysis center, this requires us to send usually staff from the MCS team to go to the dialysis center and to train the staff. They train them on the alarms, on how to get the Doppler maps, and how to troubleshoot any issues that may come up during dialysis. There has to be a comfort from the nephrologist as well, who's going to be rounding on the patient and caring for them during dialysis, and how to adjust their dialysis prescription, including the ultrafiltration rate based on the LVAD settings. This is not something that we can just discharge a patient, you know, right away from the hospital into the dialysis unit and takes quite a bit of coordination, often several weeks, to get the dialysis center as well as the nephrologist ready to accept the patient. And then finally, There's not a lot of centers that will accept these patients, to be honest, just because of the expertise it does require. And so for patients who live far away from a major urban center that may be more comfortable with these patients, it may require quite a bit of transportation time. They're going back and forth three days a week. And if they live several hours from the dialysis unit, it's quite a burden on the patients to travel to the dialysis center that frequently. And so these are all considerations that we think about when weighing different dialysis options. Our other options are home-based options. And so we have two home-based options. One is peritoneal dialysis and the other is home hemodialysis. For the purpose of this discussion, I'll focus on peritoneal dialysis because that's more common than home hemodialysis. So peritoneal dialysis is a form of dialysis where we use the peritoneum and the peritoneal membrane as the membrane that 
solutes diffuse across to achieve clearance in the setting of end-stage kidney disease. And so the patients are infusing dialysate into their abdomen via a catheter that's placed into the peritoneum. They're allowing it to dwell where this diffusion occurs across their peritoneal membrane. And then there's ultrafiltration occurs because of the concentration we've placed of glucose we've placed into the dialysate, which allows for an osmotic diffusion across the peritoneal membrane and ultrafiltration. And so there's lots of benefits to peritoneal dialysis over hemodialysis. One being it uses an access that's going into the peritoneum versus a blood place central venous access. And so that does decrease the risk of infection compared to hemodialysis. The one caveat with that is that you do need to think about where the drive line is in patients who have an LVAD and to make sure it's not in the peritoneal space where there's this frequent exchange of fluid that's happening to achieve the dialysis, which may pose the patient at greater risk of infection. The other benefit of peritoneal dialysis is that this is a therapy that's done every single day and so much more physiologic. And in that way, there's less hemodynamic instability. You don't see these large fluctuations with blood pressures or mean arterial pressures or large because you don't need to do as high UF runs as you do with hemodialysis because you're doing the dialysis every day. There's also no need for anticoagulation. We're not using a blood-based therapy. So for our dialysis itself, we don't need to anticoagulate versus with in-center hemodialysis, we need to often give heparin with the treatment. The challenge of peritoneal dialysis is that it is a home-based therapy. Similar to an LVAD, it's asking a lot of the patient and their family members. They are trained on how to do peritoneal dialysis. They learn how to connect the machine, do their dwells, drain, troubleshoot, work the machines. There's also physical demands. The peritoneal dialysate bags are quite heavy and large, and so they have to be able to lift the bags up and place them into the circuit, or they need a family member that can help them do so as well. And so I do worry sometimes in, in patients who are undertaking both peritoneal dialysis and an LVAD because it is a large ask. They're essentially caring for two organs at home by themselves or in, with their family. But it does offer flexibility. They don't need to live close to a dialysis center. They can do this at home. It allows them maybe more aligned with their goals of care in terms of spending time with family. It's less time in the hospital. So there are a number of advantages there. Thank you, Dr. Bansal. These are really great points, very practical points. And just to summarize from what I've understood, there are three main types of dialysis these patients can get, either in-center dialysis or home dialysis, which includes peritoneal and home hemodialysis. For the in-center, like you mentioned, there are two main issues, either patient-related or pragmatic issues. And the patient-related issues are mainly related to hemodynamic problems, bleeding issues, and infection. And the pragmatic issues are particularly due to the need for technical expertise in taking care of these patients at the dialysis centers. And from the peritoneal standpoint, mainly what I've understood is you don't need vascular access, you have more hemodynamic stability, and you don't need anticoagulation, though we do have the challenges of putting a lot on the patient to do. And that might be a consideration when we're asking them to take care of both their heart and their kidney. So I found this extremely interesting, and it didn't actually occur to me that special training may be needed at dialysis centers to be able to manage patients with LVADs. Dr. Bansal, what kind of vascular access is preferred for these patients in whom we decide to start hemodialysis? 
Yeah, great question. So we have several options for vascular access. We can do central venous catheters, which unfortunately we do more often than we should be doing. And these are large bore catheters, which are usually placed in the IJ. As I mentioned, these carry substantial risk. So if we think that a patient with an LVAD is going to need dialysis for the long run, I typically do not recommend a hemodialysis catheter for the long term. I think the infection risk is way too high. So alternatively, we can do AV fistulas or grafts. And so an AV fistula is when the patient's own brachial artery and their brachial vein are anastomosed to create a conduit which we can access the bloodstream with the needles to do the dialysis. The benefits of a fistula are that the infection rate are very low because it is your own vasculature, so there's no nothing foreign in the bloodstream. The downside is that it does take quite a t- bit of time to, for it to mature, usually two to three months. And in a patient who has an LVAD, I worry that having a catheter for two or three months while the fistula matures may be a risk. So in these patients, I actually would prefer a a graft. And so what is a graft? It's similar to a fistula, except it uses synthetic material. It has lower infection risks than a catheter, but a little bit higher than a fistula. The benefits, despite the infection risk, is that you can use it almost immediately, several weeks after placement. And I think it's a way better option than a catheter. So my preference in these patients is to place a graft. Thank you, Dr. Bansal. That, that was super helpful. Mr. Kumar is then seen in our clinic later and noted to have a hemoglobin of 9. Dr. Houston, what could be the cause for anemia in this patient? Yeah, good question, Sonu. And this is a very common scenario we see in our LVAD clinics. I would say it's almost the rule and not the exception that our patients, particularly those with kidney injury and chronic kidney disease, are anemic. Now, one is the typical anemia of chronic disease that we can see for our patients, both who have heart failure and to have chronic kidney disease and kind of that complex physiologic interplay. But for LVAD patients specifically, I always worry that they could have a bleeding complication. Most commonly after LVAD implant, we see gastrointestinal bleeding, interestingly. And this is also a complex physiologic space. They, all of our patients are on anticoagulation. And so they do have uh, an increased risk for bleeding because of that. But if you actually compare the risk of bleeding for LVAD patients on similar doses of warfarin to say valve replacement, so mechanical valve replacement patients, our LVAD patients have a much higher risk of GI bleeding. There are multiple reasons for this. They can get an acquired von Willebrand deficiency, which is similar to Heidi's syndrome described in aortic stenosis. As that blood flows through the high shear stress environment of the rapidly spinning rotor of the LVAD, it can unfold von Willebrand factor and then allow for cleavage and you lose your high molecular weight von Willebrand factor, increasing your risk of bleeding. And our patients also tend to have a much higher burden of angiodysplasia or arterial venous malformations in the gut and elsewhere. It's thought that this is due to dysregulation in the angiopoiesis pathway, specifically angiopoietin 2, which can occur with continuous flow devices. So if I saw a patient who had an acute or a relatively rapid drop in hemoglobin, even in the setting of chronic kidney disease, I would want to make sure to rule out GI bleed. 
The last thing to think about in LVAD patients, and fortunately, this is increasingly less common, but in the setting of pump thrombosis, so a clot that forms on or sticks on the rotor, could be ingested into the pump and sticking on the rotor, that can cause hemolysis. And that's a very dire finding. It makes us very concerned at risk for stroke, other thromboembolic complications, pump stop, or worsening heart failure. And so if they have signs, peripheral signs of hemolysis, dark tea-colored urine, or serologic signs like elevated LDH, we become very concerned for pump thrombosis. So several reasons why our LVAD patients, and especially those with renal dysfunction, may have low hemoglobin. But let's talk about the ways to address this. What about the issues around blood transfusions, as well as the use of erythropoietin-stimulating agents for these patients, Dr. Houston? Yeah, good question, Amit, and thanks for asking. We always think very carefully before considering blood transfusions for LVAD patients. I think this should be the case for every patient, but particularly for LVAD patients. And specifically for that population of patients who we're trying to bridge to either candidacy or that they're already listed for heart transplant. Blood carries with it proteins and antigens to which the patient can become sensitized to And that can really limit their potential donor pool down the road. So we try to be very restrictive in transfusions. Now, obviously, if the patient is bleeding or has symptomatic anemia, you need to address that. But often less is more. And so that raises the question, well, why don't you just give erythropoietin-stimulating agents or ESAs for these patients, commonly given for patients with chronic kidney disease and anemia? Uh, There was a study done in 2016 by Michael Nassif, which sort of threw some cold water on this idea. Now, he looked at patients with LVADs and found that for those who received ESAs, they had a significantly higher hazard risk for pump thrombosis, that kind of very concerning complication after an LVAD. He found that their hazard ratio for this was over two, it was like 2.4, 2.5 for pump thrombosis and an increased risk of all-cause mortality. This was dose-dependent, so the higher dose of ESA you received, the higher your risk of pump thrombosis. Now, one important caveat for this, the study was published in 2016 and was largely a study of the previous generation pump, the HeartMate 2. This was an axial flow device that was non-magnetically levitated. The rotor was non-magnetically levitated. And so the risk of pump thrombosis in that device was very different than the current pump. The current pump is the HeartMate 3, which is a centrifugal flow device and has a fully magnetically levitated rotor. Along with other changes in the pump, we believe these have contributed to a much lower risk of pump thrombosis. And at least to my knowledge, I haven't seen any studies published of the effect of ESAs in this current iteration of pump. It may be that they carry a better safety profile, but that 2016 paper really urges caution in considering ESAs for LVAT patients. Thank you, Dr. Houston. So uh, I think what I understand from this is we really have to be very restrictive and thoughtful about giving either blood transfusions or ESAs to these patients because there is a high risk of sensitization in the case of blood transfusions and a high risk of increased LVAD thrombosis in case of erythropoietin stimulating agents. Like you mentioned, it might be different for heart made three patients, but we still don't know. Lastly, one of the questions that come up is the ethical aspect of the fact that these patients require not just one, but two forms of support for their heart and their kidneys. 
A recent paper in JAK provided humbling numbers that LVAD patients spend more than one of every five days engaging in healthcare. Dr. Houston, how do you address this when speaking with your patients regarding available options? I think this is a really crucial question of how do we talk to patients about these questions? And I think we have a real burden of honesty when we're discussing potential therapies like an LVAD, which even if it goes well, is life-altering for these patients. I think as physicians and maybe particularly as heart failure physicians, we are eternal optimists and we're looking at patients who have a life-ending disease and we see that helpful therapy there, the LVAD. And there are many ways we can present that therapy to the patients. And it's very tempting to present the best case scenario. Here's a therapy. It's going to save your life. It's a surgery. It's going to go well. But I think we have to be honest with our patients and talk to them about what it can look like if it goes poorly. This is really highlighted in patients with chronic kidney disease going into their LVAD consideration, their evaluation, or end-stage renal disease. We have to tell them this is what this looks like if you come out of your LVAD implant and require dialysis. These are what the numbers tell us the outcomes are for patients with LVADs who have AKI or dialysis dependence. Dr. Bonsul talked about managing two failing organs at home. We have to let patients tell us if they can or cannot handle that burden and maybe even more importantly, whether they want to do that. We wake up in the morning to help people feel better and live longer. And if the patient says, look, if you give me an LVAD, but I have to do dialysis or I have terrible kidney disease and I'm going to spend, as you mentioned, one in five days engaging in healthcare, that's not a quality of life that I'm interested in. We have to allow them to tell us no and give them that grace. This is going to sound trite, but it's really a very complete communication with the patient about what life looks like with an LVAD in the best case scenario, what it looks like in the worst case scenario, and what life without an LVAD looks like. This is really humbling to hear, you know, considering that I'm going into advanced heart failure. During my rotations, one of the things that I've always felt is that you spend so much time with these patients that you're so invested in their care. And it just is important to step back and make sure you tell them about all the implications that come once they get these therapies, because that's another challenge all in itself. Finally, I'd like to ask both Dr. Houston and Dr. Bansal to give us some take-home points from today's discussion. I'll begin with Dr. Houston. Yeah, thank you, Sonu. And I want to thank Dr. Bansal as well. I learned a great deal listening to her answers about the different modes of dialysis and challenges for our patients. I think, you know, I would just leave the listener with the idea that LVADs are amazing. They can be life-sustaining, life-saving and life-improving therapies. For patients with chronic kidney disease, we really have to think twice and review the outcomes for what we expect going forward if we are to proceed with an LVAD and whether that expectation is something that the patient wants to pursue. It's a quote that's been attributed to many people, Niels Bohr, Yogi Berra, but prediction is very hard, especially about the future. And that's the challenge we're faced with these patients, particularly with chronic kidney disease, are their kidneys going to hang in there? Are they going to get better? We have a lot of progress that we need to make in more accurately predicting outcomes for these patients. And knowing what we know now, we just really need to communicate very clearly to the patient and their family members what the expectations are. 
Yeah, thank you for that, Dr. Houston. And I too have learned so much from today's discussion. So I want to thank you, Sonu and Amit as well. This has been great for me to be a nephrologist sitting in on hearing all the cardiologists talk. So great fun. You know, I completely agree with what you said. First of all, I think that we have to personalize our approaches. Can't use a one-size-fits-all approach to all these patients. And I think that there are unique considerations for patients with kidney and heart disease. That being said, I don't want us to give up on this population. I think they're important. They're a large part of the patients that you are going to be seeing as cardiologists and advanced heart failure specialists. So I think I love this collaborative approach. I think this collaboration has to occur between cardiologists and nephrologists as we're doing today, learning from each other to help inform our patients about their options and work very collaboratively with the patient to understand their needs and what their wishes are. I would say that I'm optimistic. I think that the fact that we're having these sorts of conversations means that we're all thinking together. Wow, what a terrific discussion. I am taking so many points away from this and really how to balance this nuanced decision-making and finding the middle ground, not being that eternal optimist that Dr. Houston was talking about, but at the same time, not being totally annihilistic for these patients for whom there are therapies that can help both prolong life potentially and improve quality of life. The main point I'm taking away is that regardless of the specific situation is being collaborative and asking for help from a multidisciplinary team effort and engaging the patients in that personalized decision-making. So, Thank you so much to Dr. Bonsall, Dr. Houston, for imparting your expertise and helping us take the best possible care of these patients as we can. And sincere thanks to Sono Abraham for leading this discussion and really helping us distill these points in this format. Thank you all. Beep. Beep.